My goodness, it seems that we just keep learning stuff about hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, medicine keeps adapting. It keeps changing. And that's fantastic. That's absolutely what medicine is supposed to do. Not long ago, we released an episode called The Rule of 55. That had to do with the acute treatment of urgent hypertension. And that's not the focus of this episode, but it does go to show just how much data and guidance there is out there regarding hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. Well, we're back at it again with this episode. Because in this episode, we're going to review a soon-to-be-released publication from the Green Journal. This publication just came out on September the 14th, 2023, ahead of print. So it hasn't even come out in formal publication yet. And again, it's in obstetrics and gynecology. And the title is Utility of Weekly Laboratory Monitoring in the Expectant Management of Hypertensive Disorders of Pregnancy. In other words, those that you're following up as an outpatient, you see in the back what weekly for, uh, for evaluation, and whether or not the utility of lab tests every week actually changes management. Man, we've done a lot of data reviews in this podcast about hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. In the past, we covered the BUMP trials. Do y'all remember that? BUMP 1 and BUMP 2. That was published last year in 2022. Those trials had to do with home monitoring of blood pressures and whether that's helpful or not. We're not going to get into it in this episode. Well, we may touch on it a little bit in this episode because it still applies. (laughs) But in this episode, I want to specifically focus on serial lab tests for patients with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy who are being followed expectantly antepartum. So do you all get those labs? I mean, like, you know, weekly CBCs, CMP, complete metabolic profiles uh, to look for creatinine or bumps in LFTs. D- do you do that? Because that's actually what we're called to do. That goes all the way back to ACOG's practice bulletin number 222 from June of 2020. And I'm going to read you that excerpt in just a moment. But I really want to focus again on the value, on the utility of weekly lab visits in the outpatient management of non-severe hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Is it helpful? We now have some retrospective data that can help answer that question. It's just what we do here. You've got to know the recent data because it probably will affect the way that you practice. All right, everybody, let's cover weekly lab test for hypertension. Let's do that now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
It really is pretty inspiring just to see how much we've learned about hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. I mean, we have a pretty good grasp on the presumed pathophysiology of these things with abnormal placentation into the spiral arteries. And we now have blood tests that can look at the prediction of a patient with hypertensive disorder in pregnancy uh, to predict their ability to get severe in the next seven to 10 days. We covered that not long ago. And one of my old attendings, who is a pillar in MFM and even with the American Board of OBGYN, Dr. Norman Gant, um, I remember him and it would think that he would talk about when I was an intern, even when I was a medical student, uh, some of the tests that they did back in the 70s. Dr. Gant actually first published in 1974 the supine presser test as a way to predict who would get, quote, acute hypertension in pregnancy, end quote. The supine presser test. Yeah, it's not worth going into now because we don't do it. But this goes all the way back to 1974. That's Dr. Gant. Um, along with Dr. Crosby and, and Dr. McDonald. I mean, these were all pillars of maternal fetal medicine at, at UT Southwestern and Parkland. I'm thankful for those those pioneers who helped lead the way. And then, of course, Jack Pritchard uh, from Williams Obstetric, Dr. Cunningham. I mean, my goodness, uh, such admiration uh, for those scientists and, and those uh, high-risk obstetricians. But all to say, things really do progress from that. If we go from there to ACOG's Practice Bulletin, which is number 222 from June of 2020. The title of that bulletin, if you remember, was Gestational Hypertension and Preeclampsia. There's there's a little excerpt, there's a few sentences that have to do with the outpatient management of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, of course, antepartum, that, that we need to address. And that's the focus of this episode. I want to read you this excerpt from that practice bulletin because this is the exact premise. This is the foundation of what these authors who just published this this new study um, built their entire uh, investigation on, right? And it has to do with the antepartum outpatient management expectant care for patients who are diagnosed with hypertensive disorder in pregnancy, whether that's gestational, preeclampsia without severe features, or chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia, who obviously don't have sustained severe criteria, otherwise it would be delivered, right? So here's the excerpt from Practice Bulletin 222 regarding when to order labs in the antepartum expectant management uh, uh, treatment program, algorithm, whatever, uh, for these patients. Quote, Continued monitoring of women with gestational hypertension or preeclampsia without severe features consists of serial ultrasound to determine fetal growth. All right, stop there for a minute. That's a yes. Everybody gets that. Got to look for growth restriction. Check. Okay, what else? Weekly antepartum testing. All right, let's stop there as well. Yes, that's a check mark. I get that. That's part of the outpatient indications for antepartum surveillance from the college. Okay, keeps going. Close monitoring of blood pressure. Yep, everyone's got thumbs up on that one. Everybody agrees with that. And here's here's the sentence. Ready? Quote, and weekly laboratory tests for preeclampsia. End quote. So let's, that's our focus here. All right, so let's see how this plans out. Oh, ma'am, hey, it's good to see you. You're 26 weeks. How do you feel? Oh, I feel great. Hmm, your blood pressure uh, in the clinic is 150 over 90. You feel fine? I feel fine. All right, let's recheck it at the end of the visit. Oh, still 150 over 90. Ooh, all right, we're going to 
play very close eye on you. We're going to get some labs, uh, send your urine for protein, and just bring you back uh, in three or four days or so, see what's going on, and we can redo your labs. Okay, fine. You make the diagnosis. Let's say in this case, she is preeclampsia without severe features. You're still going to go ahead and do outpatient expected management because they're not severe. And part of that algorithm, because of this 2020 bulletin, says weekly laboratory test for preeclampsia, right? Now, let me pause there for a minute because some group's protocol is, oh, you've got two uh, elevated blood pressures as a new diagnosis in a clinic. That's an automatic send to labor and delivery for eval. And do the initial set of labs and check for urine protein there in-house. There's nothing wrong with that, all right? It's obviously more costly. It's a little bit more whoop to do, um, but there's nothing wrong with that. In my little scenario that was hypothetical, I said, okay, we'll bring you back in, in three days or so and check your labs now, which is what you should do, and then close uh, follow-up in three to four days. That's also fine. Uh, I've done both in the vast majority of the times. If I get two elevated pressures, I do like to send them to labor and delivery and make sure I'm not missing anything, but I also have a very high-risk population, okay? So I've got patients that fall through the cracks. We have lower socioeconomic uh, patients. Sometimes they have uh, poor transportation. So I send them there for initial testing so we don't have loss to follow-up. But just FYI, if, if you find two elevated pressures as a new diagnosis, totally okay to send them uh, for outpatient, short patient, um, short-term outpatient follow-up with initial labs done in the clinic. If they're dependable, you can bring them back. Uh, maybe you can offer home blood pressure tests, which we'll discuss in just a minute as well, because that was disappointing, uh, or send them to labor and delivery, Okay. All right, none of that has to do with the article that we're summarizing, but just wanted to clarify that in case somebody heard that and like, oh, I can't believe Chapa sends them home. No, I send them to the hospital because I'm super type A and my OCD-ness does not allow me to do that without lacking, you know, risking my sleep at night. But but I have done it at times, okay? I felt like that had way too much explanation. My goodness, that has nothing to do with what I was talking about. Did y'all, does y'all follow that? yes. Yes, like I can see you saying yes on your side. I can't see anything. All right, now that we've done that practice bulletin excerpt, uh, I do want to say one more thing because immediately following that, here's another critical clinical pearl that I think people tend to forget, which is, quote, following the initial documentation of proteinuria and the establishment of the diagnosis of preeclampsia, that's proteinuric hypertension, of course, additional quantification of protein is no longer necessary, end quote. And, and I've seen this. I, they already have a diagnosis of preeclampsia, and then they come back like two weeks later to the hospital for a 24-hour urine. Why? Can't, I cancel that. Stop that. Stop, stop it, stop it, stop it. It doesn't change management. It may be good for prognostication, like, oh my gosh, you are spilling a, a big meaty steak in your urine because your protein is eight grams. Uh, that's a lot. But that doesn't make you any more severe. Does it make you severer? More severe? Severer. It doesn't make you worse, okay? It's not part of the severe criteria. So once you're proteinuric, you're just proteinuric. You can stop looking. So you go, oh, but she's super uh, edematous, and I need to see what her protein is. Why? And just give her, maybe give her some Lasix. The amount of protein in there is okay for prognostication, but it has nothing to do with diagnosis or management. All right. So once they're proteinuric, you can stop looking for protein changes. All to say, just wanted to touch base on what Practice Bulletin 222 has to say about weekly lab tests for preeclampsia, and the premise is, ah. Uh, 
We're going to keep an eye. We're going to put you now in lab surveillance because that's so much fun, right? Getting your blood draw every week. I mean, some of the things that we do to our poor patients, my goodness. I mean, I, I struggle to get my lab drawn for my like life insurance stuff. I'm like, oh my God, do we have to do it? I know I'm fine and I hate to get it. But every week, man, that's a pain in the ass. So just um, from a patient perspective, yes, trying to be super conservative, right? Trying to follow, do the right thing sometimes may not be data driven. Now, I know what you're saying. It's in the guidance, but is that data-driven? Sometimes it's expert opinion, and that's what we're trying to tease out in this episode, okay? So the premise is I'm going to put you on weekly surveillance because once the lab starts creeping up, then I know that you're severe, and that's totally legit. That, that rationale, that chain of thinking is correct. But as we're going to see in this retrospective study, yes, it's not prospective. It's not an RCT. It was retrospective. That thought process, which is completely valid and legitimate, didn't actually plan out, all right? But before I get into that, I mentioned home blood pressure monitoring antepartum, and that was addressed in a previous episode that we did, which was called Bump 1 and Bump 2, and you can go back to the archives and look at that, but I am going to tell you briefly what they said, all right, because it relates to this. Um, Again, nothing wrong with being super conservative. I practice medicine at what I would hope to be evidence-based, what I think is evidence-based, and, and, and I am super conservative in my medical practices, FYI. Um, but home blood pressure monitoring is, is seeming to be uh, letting us down. Okay, So bump one was published in 2022, and it had to do with uh, putting patients who are, quote, at high risk of developing a hypertensive disorder in pregnancy but not yet diagnosed, giving them uh, blood pressure monitors and then using telemonitoring um, at home so that we can record their pressures. And what was found in bump one is, well, it didn't really, in any statistical meaningful way or clinically meaningful way, it didn't increase the detection of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy over them just coming to clinic. Super disappointing, okay? That was bump one. Bump two was the exact same premise, but it was now uh, focused on women who had a diagnosis of a hypertensive disorder in pregnancy, whether gestational or preeclampsia without severe, and then the same thing. Hey, here's your blood pressure monitor. Use telemonitoring and see if we can pick up severe blood pressures rather than waiting to come in in clinic. Uh, So bump one was in those at high risk of developing a hypertensive disorder. Bump two was uh, in those already diagnosed and seen if home blood pressure monitoring could pick up severe pressures more than clinic-based reads alone. And the answer was no, Uh, it, it, it didn't. So that's super disappointing, okay? So bump one and bump two were both published in JAMA. Now, I, I do want to clarify and be very clear. Yes, we send our patients, I send my patients home with a little blood pressure monitoring device and they have a log. And yes, we do that. We do. Okay. So you're like, ah, oh, not very evidence-based chop of bump one and bump two didn't work. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, so I, it, it's also part of patient education. Okay. So it may not change the, the earlier detection of severe hypertension, but in our patient population, uh, which have access to care issues. And we have a big uh, issue here. Remember, we're the safety net for a lot of our patients because these are the patients that have, that have social determinants of health and health disparities. Um, it's a way for them to be vested in their care. And it, it, it can be a proxy for visits that are not kept because uh, they have no car. Uh, the bus didn't get there. I mean, again, if, if you can get to your doctor's appointment 
you know, 10 minutes beforehand in your own car, that's, that's a blessing. I mean, that's great. Um, our, our patients don't always do that. And so I want to be very clear. Yes, in our patient populations, in our practice, we do send the, our patients home with a little blood pressure device and they're given instructions on how to do it because it's a medical test. So they can't take it on their back, lying down. They can't take it after they just come in from the Texas heat, which now, thank the Lord, it seems to be going uh, away. Um, and so they have to have they have to have to know how to take it. They can't have three cups of coffee and then take their pressure. They can't have their legs crossed. They have to be sitting and ideally not have smoked a cigarette. Well, because they're pregnant anyway. But you get what I'm saying. So they're given some education, and we do do that. We understand that we may not be finding based on bump one and bump two early detection of severe hypertension. But we're doing that as a stopgap for some of our patients. Does that make sense? So it's the it's the why of why you do it, uh, and and that matters here. By the way, sometimes my brain goes much faster than my mouth, and I get stuck. Did you all get that? It was like I, I totally stumbled and started to stutter. That's weird. I think I need more caffeine or less. It's one of the two. I'm not sure. Oh, man, let me share this with you. It was, it's been several weeks. I don't know when it was, maybe last month. No, it wasn't August. Maybe it was July. Uh, so one of some, one of our friends who helps put this podcast together, sometimes I, I it's, it's a one man show. I got nobody else. Mike's gone. Uh, or he gets mad and refuses to do another episode. <laughs> that, that has happened, FYI. Uh, he's my sound guy. He's the guy who kind of puts things together as much as possible. Um, but usually, ninety nine percent of the time, Mike's helping me out. Anyway, um, he says he's told me in the past. This was, I think, it was like in July. He says, "Man, um, it just sounds so." Some of the things that you got, I mean, it's not the content. Content is solid. We double check everything. We put it through our, um, you know, our fact checking. We make sure the data is solid. We get that. Is that he was man? Sometimes your delivery, it's just. It's too real world. <laughs> he goes, you need to be more doctory, more professory. Uh, what the hell does that mean? So no, I'm not doing that. I mean, you, maybe I should just do it in a British accent. See, I can even do the British accent. What was that? I, I, no. So I'm doing this with my stuttering intact and whatever, because this is what I think makes the podcast real. Uh, it is what it is. I think we, let's just get, I've told, once again, I've derailed. Sorry, Mike. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, back on track. Back to some semblance of an outline that I have here. If you're thinking, well, if, if antepartum home blood pressure monitoring 
is really not doing what it's intended to do, at least we can do it postpartum, right? I mean, at least postpartum, we're going to have value there. We're going to find severe hypertension doing it that way. Well, we covered that as well. Remember that that was the information from Steele et al. that just got published last month, August 2023, on home, quote, postpartum home blood pressure monitoring, end quote. We have an episode on this as well, so you can go to the archives. The short of it is that those patients who were assigned to home monitoring of blood pressure didn't really do anything clinically. Now, they say it, it's got an advantage here, again, to try to fix uh, some of those um, those gaps in care and try to fix racial disparities in those who wouldn't be able to have a postpartum blood pressure check otherwise but in terms of the prevention of severe maternal morbidity or mortality by doing home postpartum blood pressures, that data was not there. All right. So that was the Steele et al. publication from the Green Journal, which was not a meta-analysis, but it was a systematic review uh, that ended up looking at 13 studies regarding postpartum home blood pressure. And, and it just didn't seem there was insufficient evidence to conclude that home blood pressure monitoring could reduce severe maternal morbidity or mortality. Now, did it mean that there was no evidence? It was insufficient evidence. I want to be clear. Insufficient evidence is different than no evidence. No evidence is zero. No, there is some. It's just insufficient. Oh my goodness, I just got this wonderful Facebook message from Lauren, who's in Idaho, and I got to share it with you. She said, hey, Dr. Chop, I love the podcast. Thank you so much. Honestly, oh, that encouragement, I can't tell you how far that goes, but that's not what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> she said, hey, FYI, in Idaho, uh, male cattle have to be checked for trick um, before they're let loose on the little herd there. So yeah, how about that? And if you're listening to this, you're like, what the hell are we talking? Why are you talking about cattle and trick? Because that means you didn't listen to the immediately past episode where we talked about trick monus. Because in Texas, trick in cattle is reportable. And so I always wonder, I wonder if that's other state too, or obviously it's a big deal in Texas. But Lauren, well, I, I learned something there. So thank you for sharing that. So yes, trick is apparently a big deal in Idaho as well in cattle, if we could only get the thing under control in people. Now, you know I couldn't bring up Trichomonas without doing the Run DMC thing. Come on. We did it in the first podcast. I got to do that now. That was Walk This Way <laughs> from Run DMC and Aerosmith. I, I promise you, I have not lost my marbles. Let's get back to the utility of weekly laboratory monitoring in the expected management of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Now, you got to admit, that was a great song. If you've never heard of it because like you're super young, you've got to Google Run DMC, Walk This Way. (laughs) 
Again, this publication is coming out in the Green Journal, but it already came out ahead of print just three days ago on September the 14th, 2023. And it's important because it addresses something that we're all doing or we're doing frequently. And so even though it's got a big limitation, which is a retrospective cohort, it's not prospective, it's not an RCT, uh, it's not a systematic review of a bunch of data, it's one retrospective cohort study. Um, and that is a limitation, it's still good because it, it, it allows us to question uh, what we're doing. I mean, it, is, this, is this worth it? I mean, it's, it's a lot of expense. Um, it's kind of painful to get a blood test every week. I'm, I get that, that, you know, please don't send me a message. It's not that painful. Everyone's different. I, I would definitely not like it. Um, if you like getting your blood stick every week, then God bless you. You're a little weird. Uh, but whatever you, whatever you want to do, whatever knocks you out, that's great. Um, but for the most people, you know, getting weekly blood tests, if it doesn't seem to really have a value, then maybe we should question it. So I'll be very clear because obviously as you can get where I'm going, this, this did, did, didn't do anything, right? This had very little uh, clinical utility unless the patient was actually symptomatic. In other words, had a clinical deterioration and clinical deterioration was defined as either new onset symptoms, which we all know, right? Headache, the visual spots, right upper quadrant pain, not otherwise explained, uh, or uh, severe blood pressure. Those are clinical findings. If the patient had those, then your sensitivity was much better for lab draws. But at that point, you're going to observe them anyway because now they're severe by clinical criteria, right? So at that point, did the labs really help you? That's an interesting point. The whole purpose of the labs is to see if you can catch it before the patient gets really sick. And that's absolutely not uh, what was found in this publication. The first listed author on this publication was John Morgan. And once again, the date was September the 14th, 2023. And you could guess it. We're going to put the list. uh, We're going to put it on our reference list. So this followed patients with a new diagnosis of gestational hypertension or preeclampsia without severe features or chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia. And they did what they're supposed to do. I mean, they said, hey, let's come in weekly. Let's get your labs um, in accordance to the published guidelines. And, and let's see if, if this actually can help find worsening disease before we find it on blood pressure reads or before we develop symptoms. In terms of the N, the numbers, it was 329 who had gestational hypertension, 77 with preeclampsia without severe features, and then 53 who had chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia, obviously, again, without severe features because they're being followed expectantly as outpatients. So as we just get right to the heart of the results... Quote, overall, the diagnostic yield for laboratory assessment was 1%. That's 1.0%. And this was across all assessments, so CBC, liver function, or creatinine, with 2.4% of patients ultimately having laboratory markers of severe disease. Now, the incidence of laboratory-defined severe features was higher when the labs were drawn in the setting of worsening clinical findings, right? So severe elevation of blood pressure or the patients were symptomatic. And in that case, again, it was still only 2.8%. So the utility here of weekly lab draws, again, the intent is good. It's being conservative. We're going to catch this before something happens. But it really didn't seem to 
do anything. They go on to say, quote, clinical findings performed well as a predictor of lab-defined severe features with a sensitivity of 91%. That's great. Now, here's the big value here. It's like a ROM Plus or Amnesure. The negative predictive value was 99%. So without any kind of clinical worsening, whether symptoms or blood pressure, that was a 99% negative predictive value for finding something on lab. So that's good news. But even when clinical findings were there, the positive predictive value of it correlating to a lab abnormality was 3%. Do y'all get that? That's like one, two, three, 3%. Not surprisingly, these authors stated, quote, these findings suggest that there may be limited value in routine lab testing in asymptomatic patients being expectantly managed as outpatients. Directed lab screening in patients with worsening blood pressure or newly developed symptoms may present a strategy to reduce costs and unnecessary testing in these patients, end quote. Now, I have to be very clear because this is going against published guidelines from the college, and that makes people uncomfortable. I get that. But remember also is that the college, in being conservative, sometimes does things out of expert opinion. That's called level C uh, recommendation as opposed to level A, which is completely data-driven. So even though this recommendation of serial lab testing as an outpatient has been around, not just from 2020, but actually goes back to the original release of the summary in 2013, it doesn't really seem to do very much. So again, to be very clear, I'm not saying not to do it. I'm just saying to do it maybe more cautiously or to ask all of ourselves why we do certain things that we do because some of that may be done out of tradition and likely not really being evidence-based. All right. Well, that data was kind of a bummer, but we want to know the stuff that works and we also want to know what doesn't work so that we can potentially change behavior and ultimately change guidance and improve care. That's what we're trying to do here, guys. Just improve care for our patients on a day-to-day basis. So again, we've covered a new publication coming out in the Green Journal, officially out ahead of print just three days ago from our taping today and soon to be out in formal print. All right, so we have guidelines on one hand and then we've got this data on the other. Our goal is to meet somewhere in the middle. So there you have it. All right, podcast family, as always, we're thankful for you. Thank you so much for your messages. I I cannot tell you how much that touches us, touches me, and and how much it keeps me going. Um, Enjoy the rest of your day or night, or if you're listening to this at three in the morning, turn it off. Go to bed. It's over. You need to go to sleep. Whenever you're listening, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls. 